So, well, today, mom is the word, or we could say mom's the word. Um, I remember years ago reading about uh, the great chaplain of the Senate, Peter Marshall. You remember the old Scottish uh, preacher turned chaplain, uh, Peter Marshall? He told a story about a uh, village that got its uh, water from a spring that flowed into the, into the village. And the, um, the spring had a, a man, an old man, who was the keeper. He was called the keeper of the spring. And one year, year after year, the, um, the spring was cared for. It was, it was kept clean. It was fresh. And, and the village enjoyed the, uh, the fresh water that this, uh, the keeper of the spring provided. Well, budget came around every year, and money was tight one time. And you know, some uh, smart person on the leadership team said, you know, what are we really paying this guy for? I mean, he just kind of stands around and pokes in the river every now and again. What if we uh, what if we get rid of him? And so they voted to get rid of the keeper of the spring. And things were fine after that for a while. And, you know, weeks go by, a couple of months go by, no big deal. Hey, they're saving money. And then all of a sudden, the, the water starts having this this funny taste to it. And then people start getting sick, and no one really knows why until they figure out, oh, it's this water we're drinking that hasn't been cared for. Well, they didn't waste any time to get the keeper of the spring back. And Peter Marshall, in his wonderful Scottish brogue, said, I want to talk to you today about mothers. And he likens mothers to the keeper of the spring. That is, those whom our society has marginalized and those that we've sort of set aside as insignificant. And in truth, uh, they're taken for granted because they're behind the scenes. They work in the shadows, so often uh, unthanked, except for maybe a, uh, a gift and a card once a year. You know, it's true of mothers, but honestly, not to take anything away from, from moms, but uh, it's true of all of us. We often feel that way, especially in the Christian life, that our lives, for some reason, just really aren't amounting to a whole lot. We, um, we work behind the scenes, we work in the shadows, often unthanked, often uh, ignored, marginalized, and we can begin to think of ourselves a lot like that leadership, uh, count, the, the city council of the Keeper of the Spring, it's like, what, what do we really need that person for anyway? They're just really not that significant. They're not really contributing much. And when the reality is um, so much of what that Keeper of the Spring contributed had to do with the health of the whole city. We all have those moments where we feel insignificant and where we wonder, do we, are we really making a difference? Well, the Bible, of course, addresses this significant feeling and I'm glad it does, because uh, I feel that way at times, and I'm sure that you do as well. Thankfully, we're not alone. Let's look together at the book of Acts, chapter 1, at an individual that we don't talk about a lot, because the Bible doesn't talk about him a lot. He is a man named Matthias. Matthias. You probably know his name, but you probably not thought about Matthias a lot. He's only mentioned in two verses in the entire Bible, and yet he has a very significant role 
in the future of God's plan. And uh, he will be a very significant person in our future because he will be sitting on one of the 12 tribes of Israel. <laughs> so, uh, Matthias. Acts chapter 1. You're probably familiar with the context of Acts 1. Dr. Two Saints taken us through the book of Acts like, uh, what, eight times here in our class? So we've, uh, we've been through it quite a bit, and we're familiar with, uh, with the book of Acts. But uh, first, just to quickly summarize the first part of this chapter, Jesus has uh, already, at, at the end of the Gospels, he has died, he has risen again, and the end of the Gospels, some of them indicate the ascension, and the book of Acts here in the first chapter highlights the ascension of Jesus and what Jesus said right before he ascended, which is always a significant thing. So look at the last words of any individual in the scriptures. It's very significant. Whatever the Holy Spirit uh, intends for that individual to say there at the very end of life. And Jesus, as he ascends to heaven, if you just look at uh, chapter 1 there, you can see, we won't read it, but those uh, the great question that's asked there, in uh, verse um, 6, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This, is, this was the dream of the apostles. It's like, now we get it. Okay, you had to die. You had to rise again. Sin had to be paid for. Fantastic. Now can we have the kingdom? We're ready for it. And of course, Jesus makes the great statement in verse, verses 7 and 8 that uh, you don't need to worry about timing. God the Father is going to worry about that. Here's what you need to be focused on. You be my witnesses throughout the whole world. And the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then Jesus, verse 9, he's ascended right in their sight. Well, let's look at verse 12, because the story continues, and it is very significant for us as we begin to apply its principle to our lives. Verse 12 says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Notice they qualify uh, which Judas we're talking about here. Judas the son of James. Sometimes he's called Thaddeus to distinguish him from the, the other Judas. Verse 14, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Isn't that an interesting addition? If we read the Gospel of John, we see that Jesus' brothers were not believing in him. And yet at some point between that then and uh, the resurrection or here at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, his brothers believed in him. We know that that includes uh, the great James, not, uh, not the apostle James, but the James, the brother of Jesus, who would be the leader of the Jerusalem church, and also Jude, who would uh, write the book of Jude. So, uh, these individuals are, have followed Christ, they've seen Jesus ascend, and now they have returned and they've gone, notice it says, to the upper room. Uh, in verse, um, verse 13, it gives very distinct the upper room. So this is probably the upper room. This is probably the place where Jesus met with his disciples 
that last night on the night before he was betrayed. And uh, there's a lot of memories associated with the upper room in the Gospels. I mean, the Gospel of John, just John alone, devotes chapters and chapters to the upper room in a, a, a section called the Upper Room Discourse. But let's look at one other place. Keep your finger here in Acts and turn back to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 28. Luke has long chapters. In fact, did you know that Luke, word for word, actually wrote more scripture than Paul? Which is amazing. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts combined make up word for word more scripture than everything Paul wrote. It's amazing. Luke contributed the most uh, actual words and text to the New Testament. But Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 28. This is the upper room, and uh, there's a lot of great stuff before and after these verses, but look at what Jesus tells his apostles, starting in verse 28. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, I'll tell you what, the disciples didn't remember everything Jesus said in the upper room that night, but they remembered this. Because Jesus is basically saying, you guys, you, you twelve, get the box seats in the kingdom of God. You get to sit on the twelve thrones of the twelve, tri- twelve tribes of Israel. Wow, this was a significant honor. And of course, it led the disciples to sort of arguing about, yeah, I mean, we're sitting on twelve, twelve thrones, but who's the greatest here? Who's the greatest of, of us guys? And they began to argue with each other about which one of them was the greatest. So, flip back to Acts 1. We know that the kingdom is on their mind because they just asked Jesus about it here in Acts 1. We read that verse uh, in verse 6. Lord, are you going to now restore the kingdom? And in other words, do we get to sit on our 12 thrones now? But there's a challenge there because they are one apostle short. The... the um, the apostle Judas is no longer with them. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 15 here of Acts chapter 1. It says, At this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. Now I want to show you where this probably took place. Let me share my screen here with you. All right, you should see a map and my cursor floating around. Do you see that? John McDonald, shake your head if you do. Okay, all right. So, uh, this is Jerusalem, and the traditional place 
called Akaldema, or the Field of Blood, is in the Hinnom Valley. We talked about the Hinnom Valley before, but the Hinnom Valley is this valley right here, and Akaldema is this area right in, right here, where the Hinnom Valley meets the Kidron Valley, right at the, the junction. There's a little section right here. And there is a, let's see if I can forward, there is a monastery. Here's the Hinnom Valley coming down where this road is. And the Kidron Valley is going this way. So we're looking west. This is west. And this, these cliffs here, are the field of Akaldama. And they have built a monastery uh, over this place where traditionally Judas hung himself. Seems like a weird place to build a monastery. It's like, yeah, I'm a monk and I, I, I live in the, in the monastery where Judas hung himself. But it's, uh, there's a monastery here right over these cliffs, and you can get a better view of these cliffs. And you sort of get a picture here of potentially how it could have happened. You know, the Gospels say that Judas hung himself, and here in the book of Acts it says that he fell headlong and his intestines spilled out. Possibly... We don't exactly know how both of those could have happened, but very conceivably, Judas tried to hang himself or did hang himself, and either his neck broke or the limb that he was hanging from broke, and he, he fell headlong. And uh, if, if he was on this cliff or if he was in this area, you could see very easily how uh, a fall would do more than simply uh, kill you. It could disembowel you. So this is the field of blood, and then this... I'm just going to go ahead and show you this part. This is a church called the Church of St. Peter in Galicantu. And it's very near this area. In fact, let me go back to the map here. The Church, church of St. Peter in Galicantu is right on this area. In fact, I wonder if this 48 here is it. I'd have to look at the legend. But it's right in this area, and it overlooks the Hinnom Valley. And the significance of that is that this church, St. Peter of Gallicantu, is traditionally the house of Caiaphas, where Peter denied Christ. Honestly, that tradition is pretty thin. It may or may not be uh, the actual place where it happened, but it is the place where we, where we remember it happening. And I think I've got another picture here. Yeah, this uh, road actually leads down from the house, the so-called house of Caiaphas, to the Hinnom Valley. And that monastery that we saw is out of sight here behind the trees. Um, but it's significant to mention these two right here together. And I'll stop the sharing there. Uh, in light of what, we would, of what we'll look at later on. So just keep those, uh, those two images in mind. But Peter stands up and he tells the, uh, those who were gathered there in the upper room, so look, we need to, we need to replace Judas. Um, and he, he basically says the scripture fulfilled, in verse 16, he says the scripture was to be fulfilled about the Holy Spirit through David talking about Judas. And then he sort of gives an explanation here about how Judas died, or Luke gives the explanation there in parenthesis in verse 18 and 19. Well, with Judas's death, they see a need, and they discerned that need from the scripture. And here it is. Look at verse 20. Peter quotes the Old Testament. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate. 
let his uh, and let no one dwell in it, and let another take his office. So the the Spirit of God inspired Peter, inspired those there to understand from the Old Testament that Judas needed to be replaced. The disciples saw from Scripture that Judas's position as apostle needed to be replaced. And one of the reasons is because they understood Jesus' return as imminent, that it could happen any time. Interesting, in the same upper room where Jesus had predicted Judas's betrayal, Peter explains through the Holy Spirit that Judas needs to be replaced in that same, same room. Now, it's kind of interesting. Some have wondered whether or not Judas was saved, whether he believed in, in Christ. If you look at a lot of Hollywood movies, it's interesting because they tend to view Judas sort of as the, the young sung hero or the misunderstood apostle who was just trying to help Jesus out and somehow got caught in this political uh, turmoil and was this misunderstood and uh, misguided apostle. But the Bible pr- portrays G- Judas in a very different way, Produce, uh, portrays him as a greedy man, as a thief, and one who, who almost certainly did not believe in Jesus. And we know that from uh, several factors. Three factors in, in particular make this pretty clear. The first is Jesus' own words. Jesus called Judas a devil in uh, John six seventy. He called Judas a devil and said it would have been better for him that he had, that if he had not been born. That's uh, Mark fourteen twenty one. And in referring to the disciples, when Jesus was praying to the to uh, the Father about the disciples, Jesus said, "Not one of them has perished except the son of perdition." That's John seventeen twelve. So Jesus himself says that Judas uh, was not a believer. So that pretty much seals the deal. But there are other things that give that implication as well. The place of Judas's death. So not only Jesus's words, but the place of Judas's death. We've already seen there in uh, Akaldema or the field of blood there in the Hinnom Valley. And I wonder, I've, I've often wondered this, if if Judas chose to uh, take his own life there in the Hinnom Valley, because it's the Hinnom Valley that that Jesus often referred to as a metaphor for hell. That's a that is a interesting interesting connection. If, if if nothing else, it's a marvelous coincidence. If there wasn't intent behind it, and uh, but the third reason is what we're looking at here in the Book of Acts. So the first was Jesus' words, second Judas's death, and finally. Judas's replacement. The fact that the twelve apostles, they understood that they would be ruling over the twelve tribes, and that uh, after Jesus's death, they felt like they needed to replace Judas's position. And we know that this is so because, um, remember after James, if we were to look a few chapters further, I think it's in Acts chapter 12, when the apostle James is killed, Remember, he is the first of the twelve who actually is martyred uh, by Herod. They don't scramble to replace James. Why? Because in the resurrection, James will be resurrected to still enter the kingdom and to sit on the throne. So they didn't replace James, but they did replace Judas because they understood that Judas's resurrection was going to have an entirely different destiny.
So the infamous betrayer of Christ, if you look at, uh, look at him in the Gospels, he always appears last, and Peter always appears first. Every time the, the, the disciples are listed, Peter's always first, Judas is always last. And um, I've often thought that's an interesting observation because if we remember, Peter committed a sin just as horrible as Judas on that night. Peter denied Christ. Judas betrayed, Peter denied, and all of the other apostles scattered and deserted Jesus. So who's to say that Judas's was any worse than any of the others, except for the fact that Judas didn't believe. He didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Um, this is why Peter's, uh, Peter's sin just led to a good cry and a changed life, and Judas's, uh, Judas's sin led to a completely different destiny. Some say the Apostle Paul was the one who replaced Judas, and of course, this this isn't true because we look here in the book of Acts. But also, you know, Paul, uh, the the twelve are referred to as the twelve before are outside of the ministry of the apostle Paul. So even the inspired book of Acts refers to the new twelve apostles, including Matthias, as the uh, as the legitimate twelve. And Paul, he calls himself uh, even as one untimely born. He he's an apostle, but he's not one of the twelve. So, he's still an apostle, but he's not one of the twelve apostles. But listen to what Paul wrote. You don't need to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, but just listen to 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Paul says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So you have two different responses to sorrow, and we all feel sorrow at our sin. But Paul is saying there's two different responses. There's the sorrow that's according to the will of God. It produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. This is the route Peter chose. But then there's another one, Paul says, the sorrow of the world produces death. And this is the sorrow that Judas chose. So Judas's sorrow led him to a, a needless desperate act, a sin's penalty. Peter's sorrow led him to grace and sin's remedy in, uh, in the forgiveness of Jesus. So they needed to replace Judas. And in verse 21 now, P- Peter describes the qualifications necessary for this replacement. So look at uh, verse 21 with me. Peter says, Therefore it's necessary that one of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So notice the qualifications. Of all those who were followers of Jesus to that point, there were two men who were qualified to be apostles, to replace Judas, Joseph and Matthias. Both of these men were present, we're told, from the time of John's baptism. So that's like the very beginning, the time that all the other apostles were there as well. Present when Jesus was baptized, when when John the, the Baptist was doing his ministry, 
and they would have been present from that time all the way up to, of course, the witnessing of the resurrection. So, this means that these two men saw the miracles of Jesus. They were part of the crowd. They were probably part of the 70 that Jesus sent out. Um, they would have seen the miracles. They would have probably eaten the, uh, the miraculous dividing of the fish and bread. They would have heard the Sermon on the Mount. Um, they were there the whole time. And I looked in my concordance for the name Matthias. And if you look in your concordance, you're not going to see Matthias in the Gospels at all. His name never appears. And yet he was there on every single page. That is so significant. Because there are a lot of people that were faithful to Jesus and people who have been who were just as qualified to be apostles, and yet God in his sovereign choice chose who he chose. Just because we aren't chosen for a particular position or to be uh, uh, exalted in, in a way that others are doesn't mean that we aren't qualified as well. It means that in God's sovereign plan and from Matthias's perspective and God's sovereign timing, it just was a matter of waiting until God expanded his influence. His name never appears in the Gospels. And even in the book of Acts, it only appears in this instance. He appears for a moment, and then he goes back into obscurity. Matthias is one of those individuals who served in the shadows, not calling attention to himself. And yet, God saw his heart. God saw him the whole time. And it's interesting if you think about it. Matthias didn't follow Jesus Christ uh, with a motive to sit on one of the seats in the kingdom of God. You could sort of question that about the other apostles, because they started arguing and elbowing with each other and jockeying for first place among the twelve. But that wasn't the case with with Matthias. Matthias was like, you know, that those all those seats are filled. I'm following because I love Christ. And that's the motive for all of us, isn't it? It should have been the motive for the twelve. And even those who are in positions of influence and authority, that should be their motive, our motive as well. I love that principle. For more than three years, Matthias saw it all in absolute obscurity. I sort of had this experience myself. Um, I was a pastor for 14 years, from 1990 to, what is that, 2004, I guess. I served in a couple of different roles in a local church, the last nine of which was the role of a senior pastor in which my responsibility primarily was to teach the Bible uh, every week. And so, obviously, I did a lot of that. And then once I got to Insight for Living, I was there for 12 years, and it was a, such an interesting irony because I was never asked to speak anywhere in any capacity. Um, and it was, it was sort of made me second guess, you know, my gifting. It's like, Lord, maybe I just misunderstood it that whole time I was in the pastorate because God wasn't using me in a teaching role at all except writing, but that's different. And so you get this sort of feeling and wondering when, when, when your gift is set on the shelf, you begin wondering, maybe God, you've set me on the shelf. Maybe you're, maybe you're done with me. 
Maybe I really don't have a future or a significant role in your kingdom in the future. Um, and I'll tell you, if when those thoughts start entering your mind, you begin to do some very serious, introspective thinking. And it's almost like the Lord is saying, are you willing to sit and wait? Are you willing to just serve in the shadows in an insignificant way and in, in a way that, uh, well, anyway, that had some various serious struggles? And it was a challenge. I'll tell you, it was a great challenge. And it wasn't until uh, I was released from IFL and was given the opportunity now to just begin to think broadly, Lord, maybe now is the time that you want me to begin using my teaching gift again. And anyway, it was uh, it was wonderful to, to be able to see his his answer of absolutely yes, and it was like jet fuel behind me at that point to be able to start my online uh, tours of the, uh, the Holy Land as well as real tours of the Holy Land. And it was the very same week that uh, that I was released from IFL that Doctor Toussaint asked me to teach his class. So it was a incredibly affirming, and it was a a um, it was almost like the Lord was saying the last twelve years have not been a waste; they've been a time of preparation, they've been a time of humbling, and a time of uh, of waiting on me and me getting you ready for uh, to expand your influence. It's not just true of me; it's true of so many of us. I'm sure that many of you could raise your blue hand and give a testimony of how you felt set on the shelf for a while and God powerfully used you after that time, after that season of setting aside. And I learned something during those 12 years that it's a simple principle, but I want to share it with you because it is. it, it may be something that you need to hear in the season that you're in right now. And that is that we can glorify God just as much is in our waiting on Him as we can in our serving Him in the strength of our gift. We can glorify God just as much waiting on Him as we can serving Him with the strength of our gift. I'm telling you, that is a fact. And um, He gets just as much glory from waiting on Him. And giving Him glory, that's what it's really all about, isn't it? That's what Matthias did. That's what Matthias did. He didn't disqualify himself through impatience or through bitterness, the whole ministry of Jesus, until one day he was following the crowd with the rest of the disciples up to the upper room, and the Holy Spirit of God all of a sudden picks him out of the crowd to replace Judas as one of the twelve apostles. I bet there was nobody more surprised that day than Matthias. And that's how it should be. That's how it should be. Um, anyway, I was just thinking about the conversation that I had with Dr. Toussaint. I can still see his finger. Remember, he had those long fingers. And uh, I still remember his finger pointing right at me. And uh, he was struggling to talk at that time, you remember. But he could point, And he was just pointing at me. You, you, you. <laughs> Um, great surprise. Think about Jesus. It was, it was true of the Lord Jesus as well. In fact, I think it, Jesus is our greatest model of serving in obscurity this way. Um, 
in Philippians 2, we're told that Jesus, being in very nature God, God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Talk about untapped potential. Jesus Christ, from the time that he could hold a hammer to the time that he was about 30, a little over 30 years old, he wasn't healing people, he wasn't preaching, he was building tables. He was chiseling mortises. This seems like a huge waste of time, and yet it wasn't, because God was using those three decades to prepare Jesus for three years of very significant ministry. The same is true of each of us. So, once again, the principle I shared with you, here's another one, or to say it a different way, that God sees your faithfulness in obscurity as preparation for increasing influence. God sees your, your faithfulness in obscurity as preparation for increasing influence. Jesus told a parable one time, the punchline or basically the application was basically this, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. The context of that is ultimately fulfilled in his kingdom. It wasn't, uh, you've been in charge of a few things here on earth, now I'll put you in charge of a few things, a few, uh, more things here in this life. Sometimes that does happen. But that parable is pointing to the kingdom, which means that the increasing influence that Jesus Christ is preparing you for may not ever happen in this life. But that's okay, because our life, we have to think of our life as not just this you know, 90, 100 years of living. But it is the thousand years of the kingdom of God and then ultimately eternity beyond that. We are going to have the great privilege of serving Christ in some capacity. And this life now is our time to be faithful in a very few things, just like Jesus was, just like Matthias was. So Matthias was qualified. Both of these guys were. This man named Joseph was as well. But, uh, but the Holy Spirit selected Matthias. Look at verse 24, and let's, let's read this. And they prayed and said, Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. They didn't have Jesus there to ask. They weren't yet filled with the, or indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's coming in the next chapter. And so here you have the last great Old Testament use, you might say, of the casting of lots. In the Old Testament, it was a common way to discern the will of God. And this is the very last time it appears in the Bible, with, not without coincidence that uh, right before the Holy Spirit comes. But the Lord very clearly directs them to Matthias, and Matthias is added to, uh, to the twelve. God sees your faithfulness in obscurity as preparation for increasing influence. I don't know if you uh, follow the liturgical calendar. Probably most of us on this uh, Zoom call are not Catholics, but I think there's something healthy in a liturgical calendar. But this coming Wednesday, I think it is, is St. Matthias's Day. 
It's the day that the Catholic Church, anyway, remembers Matthias. And in our tradition, we don't really do that. But I think there's, there's something healthy in it. You know, we'll remember Washington and Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr., but, uh, you know, we don't remember Matthias. We don't remember Esther and Ruth and so many of these other biblical people who had significant influence and whose lives are worthy of remembering. So when Wednesday rolls around uh, and it's Matthias Day or St. Matthias Day or whatever it's called, it'd be, it'd be appropriate for us to think back here to the first chapter of Acts and remember Matthias's faithfulness behind the scenes, in the shadows, serving, following Jesus, not expecting anything. And then surprisingly, one day, the Lord elevates him to a place of being an apostle. I think it's the same with us. When we beg God to rescue us from our insignificant lives, believing that nothing important is happening with us, Matthias reminds us that just the opposite is true. We need to see our our obscurity today as a significant opportunity. Faithfulness today positions us in a place of greater influence for God tomorrow. So we just ask, Lord, how can I serve you today? How can I serve you right now in my life? It doesn't have to be huge. Just show me how to do it. Show me something I can do and then help me be faithful doing it and know that God sees and God is pleased with you and that one day he will increase that influence to a greater extent. You know, Matthias never again appears in the book of Acts. He emerges for a moment and then vanishes once again into obscurity. Someone who followed God just for the motive of loving him. Let's pray. Our Father, even though Matthias never says a word in this passage, his actions have spoken so loudly all throughout the Gospels. He's not present. And yet here in Acts chapter 1, his actions speak so loudly because he was faithful from the very beginning all the way through to the ascension of Christ, so much so that he became an apostle. Father, would you help us as we look at our seemingly insignificant lives and seemingly insignificant contribution to your ministry and to the lives of others? Uh, whether we're mothers or fathers, grandmothers, grandfathers, sons or daughters, brothers or sisters, or simple servants in the body of Christ. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful at the very little thing that you've given us to do, trusting that you will increase and expand our influence in your time and in your way and for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.